Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. And while my folks are away enjoying a seldom taken vacation, I'm very, very honored and glad to be here filling in and just, just excited about what God has laid on my heart for this morning. So before we do anything else, I would like you to go ahead and give me two thumbs up. Put down your Bibles, your phones, all that stuff. Go ahead and move them this way, and then reverse directions. I don't want to be responsible for any Bible-related injuries, because (laughs) we're going to be all over the place this morning, okay? In fact, I don't even remember if I told Rachel what passage we're in. I think it was just the Bible. We're just going to be in the Bible. (laughs) How many of you may have heard, uh, this was several years ago, but a, a pretty prominent a uh, pastor named Andy Stanley made a comment a couple years ago in one of his sermons about the need for us as New Testament believers to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Does anyone remember hearing about that or reading about something like that? Okay, a handful of us. And later he clarified that his intention was, sim- was not to say that the Old Testament has no value, it's not useful, but that what it contains shouldn't really have any bearing on our lives today because we're in the New Covenant period. I would like to submit to you this morning that I think he is precisely backward on that. And, and not, just because, not just because the Old Testament is necessary. This is, listen, do we believe that this is it's one book? I mean, it's, one, it's multiple books, but one story is our Bible, right? Multiple contributors or authors, but one editor, right? And so it's an all or nothing kind of deal. Without the Old Testament and the context that the Old Testament provides for us, we have no hope of reading the New Testament and actually understanding what's going on. Before we can understand the New Testament, we need to understand the Old. And before we can understand the Old Testament, We need to understand the context that produced the Old Testament. We need to be able to think like an ancient, like a Hebrew. So my hope is that that's what we're going to get to do a little bit of today. Because I don't want you to just take my word for it. And I'm sure that most of you would agree with me that we need the Old Testament. But if you'll you'll humor me, I'd like to prove it to you. Because there are some things and concepts that we tend to throw around, even in our culture outside of the church, that just aren't, they're just not right. We don't have them right. So let me give you an example. This is where we're going to, we'll get to this. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, someone used the phrase, my body is a temple, right? Usually, lately, it's some Instagram model in her yoga pants eating some, like a beet salad or some nonsense like that, right? It has to do with, I take care of my body because my body is a temple. And the New Testament talks about the fact that our body is a temple. But I'm just going to tell you straight up, and by the time we're done, I think you'll agree with me, that is not, that is not what the New Testament is talking about. It's not even close, actually. Way, way, way off. And if that's what you take from that passage, you're missing so much. You're missing so much. So what I'd like to do is to camp on a, a theme throughout all of Scripture And we're going to trace it throughout the Old Testament and get the context for it and then use that context to inform 
our understanding of what the New Testament talks about when it uses this same theme. Because if you just read the New Testament passage, divorced from all that, we're lost. And the theme is something called sacred space. It's a really, really important concept in the Bible. And it becomes even more important, believe it or not, in the New Testament. And it actually affects each and every one of us because of how we should be understanding it. So we find this concept of sacred space first in the very first events of the Bible, right in, right in the Garden of Eden, actually. We're not going to go to Genesis because the language that gets used about Genesis and about Eden is actually found in the book of Ezekiel. So if Ezekiel isn't familiar to you, the book right before it, which will help you get your place, is Lamentations. Because we all go there, right? No, kidding. <laughs> So we're looking for Ezekiel, and I'm a millennial, so this is my Bible. We're looking for Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're going to start in verses 13 and 14, and then we're going to jump to verse 16. Now the context, if you were part of the Problem of Evil series, or if you've seen that since we posted it on YouTube, this is a familiar passage because we camp here when we're getting some biblical context on who the serpent is in reality, right? It's not just a talking snake. There's a lot more going on there. But for our purposes this morning, there's something, that, something else in this passage that I want us to see. We all think of Eden in terms of what? In fact, we call it, it's four words, the Garden of Eden, right? That's how we think of it. And when we conceive of it in our minds, we think of this lush, well-watered garden, forest, plants everywhere, all this greenery, all this, all this fruit and, and food, animals, rivers maybe, all these different things. But there's, there's something we don't really think about when we think about Eden, and it's in this passage. So Ezekiel 28, 13. Now, this is in the context speaking to the serpent, but we're going to look at the details. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So cool, it is a garden, right? That's not wrong. We're just missing the rest of the story. Every precious stone was your covering, and he lists all the stones. This, this is an idea in the Old Testament. These flashy, bright, brilliant appearance is language that's used to describe a shining appearance, right? This is, a, this is not a human being. This is a, a divine being, a spiritual being, right? And so, at the end of verse 13, on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, where was he? In the garden of God in Eden. But in verse 14, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. And then skip to verse 16. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Eden is a garden. Eden was also a mountain. And typically when we think of Eden, we think of this lush valley. It's not the case. Now, we're going to trace this further because what's very interesting is that the very first place where God's presence was, was Eden. And it was described as a mountain. But interestingly enough, if you go throughout the Old Testament with me, you're going to find that it's not the only place that gets described that way. So go over with me. We're going to very quickly hop through some passages. We're going to go to Exodus Chapter 3, this is a pretty familiar passage. This is the burning bush chapter. 
And I'm just going to read the first five verses of Exodus chapter 3 to us. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Where have we heard that before? That's Eden, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So first, Eden is described as the mountain of God. Then, in the earliest chapters of of Exodus, after Moses flees to the wilderness, there's a mountain that's known as Mount Horeb, and that is described as the mountain of God. And it's because that is where Moses encounters God. He sees the angel of the Lord, who is also in the passage referred to as God, as the Lord, face to face, and they have a conversation, and the ground is holy. Now, to complicate things further, in the same book, hop over to chapter 24 of Exodus. Exodus 24, we're going to start in verse 9. This is after the children of Israel have left. They are in the wilderness. They are on their way to the promised land. Exodus 24, 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. God appeared as a man to the elders of Israel, just like he had appeared as the angel of the Lord to Moses in the burning bush, just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The Lord, verse 12, said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us till we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So first, the mountain of God is Eden. Then it's Horeb. Then it's Sinai. Give you a couple more. Psalm chapter 48. We'll just look at the first two verses. Psalm 48, 1 and 2. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. I won't make you turn there, because... It's our last example, but in Micah chapter 4, first two verses, Zion gets listed again, but with it, Jerusalem is the mountain of God. 
So what does all this have in common? Because the mountain of God can't just be one place. The mountain of God is wherever God is, right? That wherever God's presence is, is the mountain of God. Because that's what we see clearly throughout Scripture. But not only that, it's not just the mountain of God, but I want you to see the effect that it has on the place. We already looked at Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. What does the angel of the Lord say to Moses when he encounters him? Don't come near, take off your sandals, because what? It's holy ground. It's holy ground. So turn with me quickly to Joshua chapter 5, because it's not the only place we see this. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 15. This is when Joshua is about to go into battle, and he sees a man he doesn't recognize. Again, the angel of the Lord. And he says, whose side are you on? And the, and, and the commander of the Lord's army says, I'm not... You're, you're either on my side or we have a problem, right? I'm not on either side here. And what's interesting, though, is because he is there, this angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, he says to Joshua in five, chapter 5, verse 15, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so, because... That's what you do, <laughs> right? So these are, this is basic. We're laying some groundwork here, but I want us to understand this idea that where God is, where his presence is, is the mountaintop, and it is holy ground. It is sacred space, and it becomes that because God is there, okay? That doesn't necessarily seem like a big deal to us, this garden, this mountain and, uh, language and these concepts, but in the ancient world, these, these designations, this language, they carried very, very important connotations. For example, why would, why would holy ground and all these things and the, the place where God or the gods in the ancient world dwell be described using this language? Because in other cultures it is as well. Well, picture you're living in the Mediterranean, the Middle East, right? It's desert. It's not, there's not an overabundance of water of vegetation, all these things. So wherever God is or the gods are must be better than this place. They must never run out of food. They must always have enough, right? And also, wherever they are, it's not here. They're not right here with us. They have to be somewhere else that's better than this place. And so this idea of a lush garden, this idea of a mountaintop that's removed from us and just our daily lives is the language that gets used to describe deities throughout, well, all of the ancient world. Think of Greek mythology. Where did the gods live? Mount Olympus. They lived on a mountain, right? And that idea of removal, of separation, of that place is it's not normal. It's different. It's better. It's sacred. Is an idea that you find all throughout the ancient world, not just in the Bible. But beyond the language of Eden, there's actually more explicit talk about this idea of sacred space that we get in the book of Leviticus, which is a book I know we all read cover to cover every chance we get. <laughs> but here's the idea. I want you to think about this, because in our New Testament context, we tend to, whether we do it intentionally or not, we tend to apply New Testament thinking to the Old Testament. And I'm here to tell you that the Old Testament came first. 
the ideas that are in the Old Testament aren't necessarily as clean and cut, and they don't necessarily always correlate one-to-one to what we see in the New Testament. What we see in the New Testament is a fulfillment of, is an improvement on, and sometimes it's a radical departure from what we see in the Old Testament. Here's an example. I will challenge you to read the, fir- the, the uh, chapters 4 through 7 of Leviticus and find one time where a sacrifice is made and the blood from the sacrifice is applied to the person who brought the sacrifice. That's how we think of Jesus, right? His blood is applied to us. New Testament uses this language. That is not what happens in the Old Testament. That's not what happened in the sacrificial system. Almost never is blood applied to the person who brought the sacrifice. And if it is ever rarely applied to a person, it's the priest not the person who brought the sacrifice. So where is the blood applied? Well, if you read Leviticus 4 through 7, what you find is the blood is applied not to the people. It's applied to the space. The blood is put on the altar, on the horns of the altar, around the sanctuary. Why? Because this is where God's presence is. This is sacred space. And we are not. We are not fit for sacred space. And so we need to... Essentially, sterilize and disinfect the sacred space. Almost like you tracked mud into God's house. And you can be here, but we have to clean up the mud. We can't leave that because that's not how God's space should be. And when we read about things in those passages like the sin offering and the guilt offering, we think in terms of the New Testament once again. My friends, there was no sacrifice for intentional sin in the Old Testament. There was the death penalty. Period, which is part of why the gospel message is so radical and why it upset so many Jewish people in the, in the first century. Are you telling me that now because of Jesus, people can, people can have willfully sinned and that's covered? Yeah, that's what we're saying. That was unprecedented. In Leviticus, the sin and the guilt offering were for unintentional sin. It even uses that language at the beginning of Leviticus 4. And that's important because a closer understanding to what the Hebrew idea is behind the sin and the guilt offering was this purification or this disinfecting offering, right? It's not for intentional things. So we see in the Israelite thinking this idea of sacred space, of separation between this is holy ground and this is normal space is very clear. It's throughout the whole sacrificial system. It's understood in the way that they talk about God's presence and where it is. But it is in other ancient cultures as well. The Israelites weren't the only one with this concept. And ironically, even though they, it, the whole ancient world had this concept, we can actually find where it came from. We actually find it in the Bible. And this is where we've been laying some foundation of this is stuff we all, I think, yep, tracking with you, this is where we're going to take a little bit of a sideways turn, because we're going to get into some passages in the Old Testament that maybe we're not as familiar with. But it's part of this story of sacred space, and so we need to understand it to round out our concept. So go with me, uh, actually, go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and while you're turning there, I'm just going to set context. Where this concept of divine space and territory and things like that comes from, it originates from the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Because what happens at the Tower of Babel, right? In Genesis 10, we get a list of the nations. 
And there's 70 of them. And again, it's not exhaustive. It's the known world at that point. And in the, in the thinking, you have the known world. The whole, the whole world at that point is 70 nations. They all get together at the Tower of Babel and they build what most scholars would say at this point, the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. If you know anything about ziggurats, what roughly shape are we talking about here? More like a pyramid than a straight up tower in kind of the way we think of it. Think of it this way. The Tower of Babel was a man-made mountain because mountains were where you encounter the divine. So the thinking of the Tower of Babel, why the Tower of Babel was so offensive to God is because rather than spread out and make everywhere like Eden, which was God's commandment to Adam and Eve, it was God's commandment to Noah after the flood, and then it was God's command to all the people prior to Tower of Babel, spread out and make everywhere like Eden. Instead, they clump together and they build a mountain to make God come to them. That's the idea. And God says, you have... We, we have very much misinterpreted the nature of this relationship. This is not how this works. I don't come at your beck and call. And so, you're not going to listen. I'm going to make you listen. You are going to spread out. This is going to happen. My will is going to be done. And so, he confuses their languages. He forces them to spread out. And, and something else that we don't see in Genesis 10 and 11 also happens. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is part of the story that we miss, but it's absolutely crucial. Verses 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, and when he divided mankind, when did that happen? Babel, okay? So... We're getting the reference, right? When Babel happened, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, some, some translations may say the rulers of Israel. That's a bad translation because the Hebrew word there is Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew Bible is a word that only ever refers to spiritual beings, it only ever refers to divine entities. And Elohim is grammatically plural. So we're talking about these spiritual beings that exist. And God is giving control or authority over the nations after Babel to them. It's not just angels and demons. This is a whole other topic. And we can get way deep down the rabbit hole on this. But I'll just say this. If you're interested in way more about all this, there is a book. There's actually two books. They're both written by a guy named Michael Heiser. H-E-I-S-E-R. One is called Supernatural. It's a quicker read. One is the more academic version called The Unseen Realm. But it talks about this worldview of this is what's going on in the Old Testament. Now... This idea that God has a council, a heavenly council, you find it in the Psalms, you find it all throughout the Old Testament. And the idea here is that at Babel, God says, you know what? I'm done with you. You won't listen. You haven't listened any time I've told you to do this. So you know what? I'm kicking you out of the house. Someone else can take care of you now. They can have you. And verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, who becomes Israel, is his heritage. In other words, God's saying, all y'all, 
They can have you. I'm going to make a new nation out of nothing so no one else can take credit for it, and they're going to be my people. Now, God doesn't want to leave them there, but that's the state of things from that point in the Old Testament, from Babel forward. It gets complicated, though, because let's go one more piece of the pie. Let's go to Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verses 1 and 2. And again, grammatically in the Hebrew, the way this reads is, I'll actually read it in English first, but it says in Psalm 82, 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So get this picture. And in grammatically in Hebrew, it is God, Elohim, has taken his place in the midst of the Elohim. Same word. So if that can't mean God, then the first one can't either, right? The idea here is God has his counsel of spiritual beings. And in Job, we actually see this, right? The, the accuser comes into the midst of the council. We see this in Kings when God says, it's time to judge uh, Ahaz, how, and he turns to his counsel and says, how should we do it? Not because God needs ideas. He's incorporating his counsel into the, the mix. So the idea in scripture is, at some point, some of these guys get handed control of the nations, but they don't do a good job. They should have pointed the nations to Yahweh. They should have ruled justly, but instead, they became corrupt. And the worldview of the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew Uh, understanding of the way things are is throughout the entire Old Testament, all of the nations are under the control and the influence and the rule of these corrupt spiritual beings that God originally put in charge. They didn't usurp God or catch him by surprise, but God gave them a job to do. And like sometimes we experience, we don't always do the thing that God wants us to do because they have free will as well. But the, one of the reasons the way things are the way they are in our world today is because of this. So from all this, this is how the gods of the nations, you wonder, like, where did all these gods come from? This, in the Hebrew thinking, is how all the gods of all the nations came to be. They come from this, from Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. They're not just fantasies. They're not just inventions. They really are spiritual beings that have limited power and authority because they've been given it by God. Now, I want to take a couple minutes with you and look at three passages to help us see that the Hebrews weren't the only ones that thought this way. We're going to do this a little bit differently, though, because I like to do things differently. If you're on this section, you're going to have one. I'm going to give us like three, four minutes to read these, and I want us to discuss them amongst yourselves. So I know this is going to be a little uncomfortable for some of you, but if you're in a row with like three to four people, you're going you're to get a little more comfortable or maybe turn around and you're going to have a conversation for a couple minutes. This section, I want you to look at this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's a short chapter, but it's basically the whole chapter is your context. 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you're in the middle section here, 2 Kings chapter 5. And you're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and... 9 through 19. 1 through 3 and 9 through 19. 
And then this section over here, your passage is Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, and 20 and 21, sort of like a tag. So, one more time. 1 Samuel chapter 5, the whole chapter. 2 Kings 5, 1 through 3, and 9 through 19. And over here, Daniel chapter 10, 1 through 14. And 20 to 21. So Steve, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here. Can we just very lightly put on some of the music that we kind of play before the, and just give you a chance. So read, get, with your, get with your group of like three, four, five people. Read the passage. And then I want you to talk about what does this have to do with sacred space, with divine territory? What's being talked about here? So go ahead and do that. Take about one more minute and finish your discussions up and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay, we're going to bring it back here and we're going to debrief kind of as we go because the other sections don't know what you just read and talked about. So we're going we're gonna to do a quick level set here. So over here in this section, 1 Samuel chapter 5, the context is the Philistines have stolen the Ark of the Covenant, and they've taken it and they've put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. What happens when that occurs? Falls on his face. That's the first night. And then they prop him back up, and then what happens? He does it again, and this time... His arms and his head snap off, right? You're not going to gorilla glue that back together, right? But here's what we miss. We all know, a lot of us know that story. Here's what we miss. We miss verse 5, which says, This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The space, the literal spot, where Dagon fell over and shattered. It says the priests of Dagon, after that, when they go in to do their their stuff, they don't walk on that spot. Why not? Because that spot doesn't belong to Dagon anymore. Dagon was defeated there by Yahweh. That space is Yahweh's now. Do you see how, how that connection happens? This is how they thought, and they literally, they wouldn't, walk, just to be safe, they walked around it from that point forward, because that dirt didn't belong to their God anymore. This section over here, 2 Kings chapter 5, our context, this is Elisha and Naaman, the Assyrian, not an Israelite, who comes, he has leprosy, what does Elisha tell him to do? Go wash in the Jordan River, and he complains, he's like, this river is junk, it's dirty. We have cleaner water back home, right? So why was the Jordan River important? It wasn't about the cleanliness of the water. What was important about the Jordan River? It was in Israel, which belonged to who? Yahweh, God, not Naaman's God. It was Yahweh's territory. That's why the Jordan River was special. Not because there's anything about the water, but because of whose territory it was in. 
And we know this because when Naaman is healed, he tries to give Elisha payment. Elisha doesn't accept payment. And this is why it's so odd to us. We read this and we're like, what? What? What So what does Naaman ask for instead? Dirt. He says, let me load up as much dirt. Let me get bags of dirt. Why would he want bags of dirt? He explains why. Because what does he have to do when he gets home? He has to escort the king who's frail into where? Yeah, the temple of an Assyrian god. And he doesn't want Elisha or Yahweh to think that he's worshiping Ramon. So he's like, let me take dirt. I'll take dirt. What's, what's he taking? He's taking the sacred space back with him. And we don't know what he did with it. We don't know whether if he spread it out in his house. We don't know if he filled his pockets with it when he went into that temple. But the idea is, I want to bring this with me. Because that's how I bring the presence of God with me in the Old Testament thinking. The Old Testament thinking is, God's space is holy because he's there. So if I can take some of that with me, then I can take God with me. This over here, this section, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel gets a vision, a message message from an angelic messenger. But he couldn't come when he was supposed to because what happened? He was stopped. He was restrained by who? What's What's he called in the passage? The prince of Persia. And what other princes are mentioned in the passage? Michael, who is your prince, Daniel. So Michael is the prince of Israel. But then there's the prince of Greece. Now, this messenger is described the same way that the serpent is in Ezekiel 28. Shining, shimmering appearance. This is not a human person. What human prince could restrain an angel? None. So when we're talking about the prince, the overseer, the ruler of Persia, of Greece, are we talking about humans? No, we're not. So Paul carries this language into the New Testament. Ephesians 6.12, that passage that we all, we know, like, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers and powers and authorities of spiritual darkness. Did you know that in the, in the Greek New Testament and in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that when arche, rulers, and exousia, powers, are used in conjunction with each other, it always refers to geographic rulership and dominion. And for examples, we don't have time to look at that. You see this applied to human rulers in Luke 12.11 and in Titus 3.1. Same combination, ruler and authority, and it's applied to human geographic rulership. But in Paul's case in Ephesians 6, we're talking about spiritual dominion and geographic rulership. So all this buildup, here's the payoff. When Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, go there with me. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. And by the way, you can write these down if you're a note taker, but he also talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Same theme, but always to the Corinthians. He says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We miss how 
crazy it was that Paul just said what he said. We have no context for how audacious it was to make that claim unless you understand the Old Testament context about sacred space. Here's what Paul is saying. First of all, let's understand who he's talking to. The Corinthians, who may have been, as far as we know, the most immoral, worldly, carnal group of Christians that we know about in the New Testament. And to make matters worse, they're Gentiles. They are the nations that were exiled and kicked out, right? All these things. Do you get what Paul is saying to them? Of all people, to them. If you are a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter. If you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit of God resides in you, you do not enter sacred space. You are sacred space. You are sacred space. And listen, I love this building. This building is concrete and drywall. This is not sacred space. There is nothing inherently special about this place. It is special because we are here. Because God's presence is in us and we have come into it. And it is now sacred space because we are here. That concept also means that wherever you go, Christian, becomes sacred space. Do you get that? Everywhere you go, your work, your grocery store, your errands, your home, it is sacred space because you are there. Because where you go, the presence of God goes. That is a very different idea than what we read about in the Old Testament. But it's important because you don't get that connection. Paul made that connection because he knew his Old Testament. So we have to know our Old Testament and think like Paul to be able to see what he's saying and where he's going with this. But once you do, oh my goodness, what an idea. What a concept, right? And it applies, again, to anyone who's a Christian. So, some of us were raised to believe the the lie I'll just say that, again, I'm all for a good stewardship, but that we need to walk softly and speak in hushed tones because we're in God's house. That's not the reality that the New Testament teaches. We shouldn't be treating any space like it's grandma's house where the fine china is behind glass and everything's covered in plastic and we need to be careful, (laughs) right? We are God's house. Period. And anywhere we go together, anywhere we go as a believer becomes sacred space. It's like when light enters a dark space, the darkness moves out of the way because it's physics. It's just physics, right? I want you to think about it in the same way from the spiritual side. Wherever sacred space enters, normal space, darkness has to move out of the way. It's just physics. It's just the way it works, right? And I want us to begin to conceive of ourselves that way because that is the reality, the spiritual reality that the New Testament says is true about us. I hope that you can see, though, that this concept, this big idea, is not possible to be understood fully without the Old Testament context that it comes from, without the Old Testament grounding and background and the ancient mindset that led directly to what Paul was able to do in in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And 
that boring books like Deuteronomy, like Leviticus, like Ezekiel, are actually super duper important. And they carry some of the most important concepts and themes that we find in all of the Bible. Again, it's all one book. It all has to tie together. It's not bits and pieces. And unless we're reading all of it and understanding all of it, we, we just miss this stuff. We just do. Amen. We just do. And we will continue to. And so part of my hope and my challenge for all of us is that we will, I hope, become more excited about the Old Testament, even the boring parts, because there's actually, there's actually nuggets in there that are, that are just crucial. They're just crucial, period. But also it will excite us to see our New Testament in light of our Old Testament and unlock all sorts of things like this. Next week, because I'm going to be back to sort of continue this thought, we're going to push this concept of sacred space and us being sacred space, we're going to push it forward into what this now means for us practically as we live our lives Because I want you to see that in light of this spiritual reality that we've just talked about, we really radically need to rethink what we mean when we talk about spiritual warfare, when we talk about baptism, and when we talk about evangelism. Because it might blow your minds to hear that all of those are actually related. They're all tied up in the same thing. The same idea of what is actually happening in the spiritual realm when those things are going on. They're all tied together. And they all have to do with sacred space. So, in the meantime, I have a takeaway for you. I believe there's enough, but we'll see. If not, you can make one yourself. Uh, It's super easy. On the welcome table, on your way out, there's a box of tiny little bottles, vials. They are full uh, or mostly full of dirt. Anyone want to guess what's special about the dirt? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing, and that's the point. So I hope that you'll take it as a reminder. You can put it on your dresser, put it on your desk at work, something. But when you look at that, I want you to remember that there's nothing special about that dirt or that space. Because you are sacred space. And everywhere you go becomes sacred space. That is true if you are a believer and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I hope it challenges you to walk, as Paul says, worthy of the calling that we've been called to. To represent God well. But it doesn't change the fact that it is true about you. Okay? So, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you for your word and how wonderfully tied together it is. How so many ideas and themes and concepts that only you, God, could tie together and bring together in such a masterful way are there for us if we are just, uh, are just willing to put in the effort to be students of your word and to study and to, to read and to see these things and tie them together. God, you are unique. There is, as we sang, no one like you. There is no one worthy of praise except for you. And those who even now are illegitimately ruling over the nations and exerting their influence until you come back and kick them out, God, 
even they have to recognize that they're illegitimate. The, the, the jig is up since the cross. But God, part of our role as Christians is to help those who are still living under that influence to see that truth, to understand that that is the reality. And we'll talk more about that next week. But God, I just pray that you would encourage us, that you would fill us with hope, with passion, with energy to get into your word, to live according to the reality that your word says is true about us. Because the closer that we can live to your truth, the more fulfilled and the more effective we will be. So we got, God, we just pray that you would make us effective, that you would encourage us and that you would use this to help make us look more like your son. It's in his name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.